This audio podcast is from the River Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope God uses it to encourage and grow your relationship with Christ. For more information about the River Church, visit us online at theriverdfw.com or facebook.com backslash theriverdfw. Good morning. Uh, my name is Joel Libramento. I'm a part of the team here at the River Church, and uh, I'm excited to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, if you're familiar with the series that we're in, it's the Gospel of John, and so uh, I, I was able to, uh, to kick the series off, and now we're kind of wrapping it up. I know Mike has been saying, like, I promise you we're going to get done with the Gospel of John, and it is true. This Sunday and next Sunday will be the last two sermons in the Gospel of John. Uh, I do have to admit to you that uh, last night I had a nightmare that uh, I was, uh, I showed up in my boxers and I actually stepped off the stage. <laughs> oh gosh, so you know, you're like all shook up, you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be crazy. Uh, but this morning, if you're taking notes, uh, the sermon title this morning is called, Whatever It Takes. Uh, I am incredibly inspired by people who do whatever it takes. Uh, I don't know. I was reading a story uh, this past week that you may be familiar. Uh, that a modern-day martyr, his name was Jim Elliott. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Jim Elliott. He was a missionary. He's from Portland, Oregon. And, uh, and one day uh, he heard um, that there were this uh, Indian tribe in Ecuador named, called the Aka people. And they were killing several uh, different tribes, along with people who were working uh, in uh, in the oil industry down in Ecuador. And so he thought, you know what, I bet uh, that if they knew who Jesus was, uh, they wouldn't wouldn't kill people anymore. And so he was one of those people who looked up and said, God, I'll do whatever it takes. And so Jim Elliott, his friend Nate Saint, along with uh, a bunch of other people on his team, they, they moved to Ecuador. And they start uh, doing these flyovers in planes uh, over the Aka village. And violent people, they knew they couldn't get close, so they fly over in planes. And they drop down this basket with gifts, and they're giving gifts to the Aka Indians. And uh, one day, the Indians actually send a gift back up, and it was really a really big day for them. They thought, man, we are communicating with this tribe. And so they figured, hey, it's time to meet them face to face. So they land the plane down in this riverbed uh, on, in the Amazon, in Ecuador, and, uh, and they actually greet some of the Indians. They actually took one of the Indians up uh, for a plane ride. Can you imagine? This, this is a, uh, a native tribe. They, they don't, I mean, they live out there. There's nothing, you know, no commodity, anything. This plane is probably, they're like with this metal bird, you know. They, they've never seen anything like this. They take one of these Native Americans, uh, or not a Native American, Native Ecuador, Ian, on a ride in a plane. And so anyway, they, they build this relationship. Well, one day, they're going to go back, and they land the plane in the riverbed. And this time, two women come out of the, out of the woods, and they're, they're not really smiling. And so Jim Elliott, they, they come across the river, and right then, uh, the warriors of the tribe come out, and they actually spear these, uh, these people um, to death. And Nate Saint, along with uh, Jim Elliott's wife, are waiting to get radioed uh, that night. They don't hear anything from them. And the next day, they don't hear anything, and they actually send an American uh, search party over, and they find uh, their bodies. You know, Jim Elliott was one of those people who said, I'll do whatever it takes. And so he goes to Ecuador. Uh, But the incredible part of this story is that uh, are really are their wives. In less than two years, Jim Elliott's wife, along with Nate Saint's wife and Jim Elliott's daughter, go back to the village, and several of those natives uh, become Christians, and they actually move into the village, and the village becomes a place uh, of safety. They, they, don't, they don't kill anybody anymore. 
Uh, And I'm always inspired by that story. You know, these are people who say, God, I'll do whatever it takes, whatever it takes. But you don't have to go to Ecuador to see people who will do whatever it takes. Uh, man, me and my wife, we, uh, and son, we had to move this past week. Uh, how many of you guys just love moving? Man, if you could move this weekend, you'd go, you'd move all your stuff. Yeah. It's not really that fun. So we packed all our stuff in, up in Wataga and, uh, we're moving to NRH and, uh, man, I had some friends come and help me. He said, I'll do whatever it takes. Uh, John Ragsdale, Colin, Mike, they came out and helped me. Listen, moving isn't fun. All right. But I get inspired by people who say, I'll do whatever it takes. They were there for like half a day. It was crazy. Long story, you know, but I previously didn't know this rental place was a a crack house. Crazy. Come talk to me later. It's an insane story. Uh, But God is redemptive, right? So, uh, man, listen, when I think about people who say whatever it takes, I know people in this room who have moved halfway across the country to see God do something incredible in DFW in this church. I'm constantly inspired by my brother-in-law, Mike, and my sister. They came out and they said, listen, we feel called. God has asked us to build a church. And, man, they've given themselves all the time. I've had plenty of conversations with Mike where he's like, man, I'm tired, physically tired, but my soul is on fire. You know, when we're weak, the Scripture says he is strong. And so, I mean, when you start rolling stories and people that you know in your head, people who say, I'll do whatever it takes, doesn't that inspire you? I mean, they put it all out there. Uh, when I met uh, Katie and I were in college, and some of you have heard this story in my life. I was in an accident several years ago. I'll never forget this story uh, because it's burned in my mind. Katie drove from Dallas, Texas, all the way to Atlanta, Georgia. That's a long drive. I don't know, what is that, 13 hours or something like that? 13 hours, and she hates driving. She's afraid of driving. She drives all the way out to Atlanta, all right? At this point, uh, I'm learning how to walk again. It was a pretty severe accident. Uh, but you have to imagine what I look like. I, my hair's grown out, so it's like really bushy. Uh, and I haven't had a haircut because I've had to have this neck brace on. So my hair is extremely bushy. I'd put it in a hat so it like stuck out the sides. Oh, man, it was so bad. Uh, that day I was wearing a button-up shirt that was checkerboard, black and white, because I couldn't put a T-shirt on over the neck brace. So I, I just, look, man, I look nice. I look so good. And so Katie drives all the way from Texas to Atlanta, And she puts me in my Chevy Blazer, which is constantly in a state of breaking down. And she puts me in my Chevy Blazer, and she's like, hey, we're going to get you out of the house today. And she drives me into downtown Atlanta. Have you ever been in downtown Atlanta? (laughs) Have you ever driven there? It's scary. You have to have the courage of like a skydiver to even want to go into that city. Uh, And she's driving in a car that's about to break down. I'm in a neck brace like this, checkered, big hair, crazy. She takes me to the Georgia Aquarium, and she's carrying my arm. She's got my arm, and I'm hobbling like this, man. I look like a Sasquatch straight out of Louisiana or something crazy. And she's walking around with me. I don't know how she could even be seen with me. And then she puts me back in the car. She drives home. And this is intense for her, okay? This, was, this wasn't easy for her. Literally, she pulls over on the way home and just starts crying. I mean, it was intense. She just drove all the way across the country. She just drove into downtown Atlanta. I'm, like, fragile, and, and I look terrible. And she just pulls over and weeps. And I'll never forget that because I just felt like, man, she's willing to do whatever it takes for me. And so I wifed her. 
uh, as they say, put a rock on it. So, uh, and I knew then that she was the one because she was willing to do whatever it takes. This past year, we had the baby apocalypse, right? And I watched women in our church, including my wife and my sister, uh, and I'm not necessarily likening childbirth to uh, crucifixion, but uh, it's pretty close in my opinion. Listen, these women are giving of their bodies, sacrificing their bodies to bring life. That is insane. And, and listen, I watched women say, I will do whatever it takes for my child. I just get inspired by people who are willing to say whatever it takes. And so uh, this morning, we're gonna actually going to be reading in John chapter 9. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, open to John chapter 9, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. John was a disciple of Jesus, and we're going to be in chapter 19. Last week, we heard from Keith McGeehee, who is an incredible man of God. That was such an honor. And if you didn't catch it last week, catch it on the podcast because uh, you got to hear it. Uh, he, he brought out some incredible points in Jesus' prayer about glory. So you have to go back and listen to that if you weren't here. Um, and so this morning, we're going to catch up in chapter 9, and, I, and then I'm going to kind of catch us up because there's a few things in there that I don't want you to miss. Um, and so let's go ahead and read in chapter 19. It's going to be up on the screen. Let me say this before I, before I read this. Um, this is going to be a heavy this morning, all right? I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know where you are at. I don't know if you came in here and you're ready for... Uh, something light and fun. Uh, it's going to be a heavy passage, and so I want I want to I want you to kind of open your heart to that. All right, it's easy when you hear this story and what I'm about to read to you to kind of get closed off. This morning, I really want you to open your heart to God and listen to what He's going to say to you this morning. Let's go ahead and read. Nineteen. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head. And threw a purple robe around him, and they repeatedly came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him outside to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priest and the temple police saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, for I find no grounds for charging him. We have the law, the Jews replied to him, and according to the law, he must die because he, he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer, so Pilate said to him, you're not talking to me. Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate made every effort to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down at the judge's bench in a place called the Stone Pavement in Hebrew, Yeah, it was the preparation day for Passover, and it was about six in the morning. And then he told the Jews, here is your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? 
We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered naturally. So then because of them, he handed him over to be crucified. It's going to get it's going to get heavy. Therefore, they took Jesus away, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place called Skull, which is in, in Hebrew is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign lettered and put on the cross. The inscription was Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew. Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. They did this to fulfill the scripture that says they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing, and that is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, John, standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was a preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's, leg, uh, the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And blood and water came out. He, he who saw this has testified so that you also may believe his testimony is true. And he knows he is telling the truth. I'm going to stop right there. I know this is a heavy story, and I wanted you to hear it. That's why I read most of the whole thing. Uh, This is an incredible story, but if you think about it, it's what all of our Christian life, it's really what history is hinged on, and I want to kind of break it down for you this morning. Think about the cross for a minute. I have to admit uh, that the cross is something that we, I don't know, we kind of become numb to. I mean, if you think about it, the cross uh, is everywhere. It's an icon. It's a symbol. Listen, you'll be driving down the road. There's crosses on buildings. There's crosses on signs. We got crosses around our necks. I've been in several homes where people collect decorative crosses on the wall. Like I got a whole wall full of crosses. Uh, crosses are everywhere. And, uh, and honestly, it, it's kind of funny because uh, in, parts, in other parts of the world, the cross is uh, kind of revered as a Western symbol like European Western symbol. But crucifixion, that type of execution, was actually originated in the Middle East uh, by the Persians. The Persians uh, created the idea, and then, like they say, the Romans perfected it. But we have crosses everywhere. Uh, I grew up in a church where there was a huge cross hanging over the stage. I mean, I saw the cross every Sunday. We have crosses in our homes, crosses everywhere. 
Um, but I think because we see crosses so often, sometimes we disconnect from it. It's just a symbol. It's just an, something we see all the time. And uh, I think we even get used to the gruesome depiction we read today. I mean, most of us, you probably heard that story. You've probably read it over and over again. You've heard the gruesome details. And uh, a lot of times uh, we just kind of, I don't know, we pass over it. We get numb. We say, oh, Jesus died for you, you know, and, and that's true. But did, what's the story? What, what is it? The idea of crucifixion uh, was reserved uh, for those who were not Romans. Roman, no Roman could actually be crucified. Uh, Romans, uh, crucifixion was only for those who they considered slaves or non-persons. One of the reasons Paul, when he was uh, arrested, uh, but he got, they got in trouble because, and they had to let him go after they beat him because he was a Roman. Romans uh, aren't allowed to be crucified, but anyone considered non-persons or non-Roman could be crucified. And there really were three major things. Crucifixion was reserved for serious criminals. All right, the first one was a murderer. You could be crucified if you murdered somebody. You could be crucified if you were an armed robber. And uh, you could be crucified if you were an insurrectionist. An insurrectionist is a person who was mounting or building a rebellious or rebellion against the Roman Empire. And so, listen, crucifixion was reserved for some serious bad dudes, okay? These were for rough, rough characters. And so now I kind of want to catch us up to where we are in the text today. Remember last week, like I said, we talked about uh, Jesus' prayer, and you can go back and read that. Uh, There were some things that happened before verse 19, and I want to just talk about those. One of those things is Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You guys remember this? Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. Uh, He was struck with a condition uh, called uh, hematidrosis, uh, which people can get when you're under an an intense amount of stress. You actually start to sweat blood. So Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is praying, talking to God. He's actually sweating blood. This is a real thing. Okay, He leaves the Garden of Gethsemane to reunite uh, with his disciples, and he's confronted with some soldiers. The soldiers show up. They got torches, the scripture says. I don't. I was about to say pitchforks. They didn't have pitchforks, but they got torches. They got swords. They're showing up, uh, and Jesus shows up, and he comes down out of the garden. He's with his homeboys, and then the soldiers are like, uh, well, first of all, Jesus addresses them in the text, and he says this. He says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, I am he. And they freak out. They fall on the floor. They're kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sure they've heard tons of stuff about Jesus. At this point, he was a pretty well-known, famous person in the area, healing people. I mean, it was obvious that this man had some sort of power. So he says, I am he. They kind of freak out. And he says, no, no, no. Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. He says, you found the right person. And then Peter gets all crazy. You, you recognize, you know this part? Peter gets crazy. He's like, man, Jesus, that, that's my dude. He pulls out a sword. He's like, nah. And he actually chops one of the soldier's ears off. Bad, 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 bad. I, I'm, I'm reading this into the text, but I would assume that the soldiers, if they showed up, Peter cut a dude's ear off. They're like, all right, wrap it up. Arrest this guy. We're out of here. And so they take Jesus uh, and they arrest him. What's interesting then is Jesus is arrested and he undergoes six different trials, three religious trials and three civil trials. Uh, In these religious trials, it's obvious that there were some illegalities happening. Annas, in this story, uh, they take Jesus and they put him through a secretive trial at night. All right. Listen, the Pharisees don't like Jesus. If you read all throughout John, Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy. These guys were jacked up. They were like, 
they're preaching all this stuff, but they were living crazy. They were hypocrites, you know. A lot of us, we've been there. We understand what that is. And Jesus is, is exposing these guys, and they don't like him, okay? So they went to kill him. And so they sent him through these trials. And, uh, and then as in the text, uh, there's another thing that happens is one of, their disciple, one of his disciples named Peter actually denies Jesus three times, which is a prophecy. That prophecy is fulfilled, and then it leads us to where we are in the text. Jesus is taken to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is a Roman uh, ruler and uh, has the authority to crucify uh, people. And Annas, who you read in the text, knows that they, as Jews, can't legally kill anybody. But if they take him to the Romans, the Romans will get it done. And so they take Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Now, in the text, Pilate is in a very difficult situation. All right, Pilate, being the Roman ruler that he is, has a ton of angry Jews at his doorstep. I mean, all these dudes, I mean, like, they're upset, and they're freaking out, and they're like, listen, we want this guy killed. He's saying a bunch of crazy stuff. He said he's the son of God. This is crazy. And so the crowd is kind of getting crazy, and he doesn't want to see a Jewish rebellion, which has happened before in history. Uh, He doesn't want to see another Jewish rebellion, so he's kind of like, okay. So he begins to appease the crowd. He has a conversation with Jesus about being a king. He says, are you a king? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, oh, so you are a king. And so then he has Jesus flogged, which I don't want to get into too many of the gruesome details, uh, but I do want to say he was beaten. He had his hair ripped out. uh, Lots of the skin was removed on his back. Tools of torture. It was a gruesome, gruesome sight. If that wasn't bad enough, the Roman soldiers then took a crown of thorns as a joke. You're a king, right? Let's make a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, piercing into a skull. They give him a purple robe, just like the text says. Robe, you can imagine, sticking to his wounds. It was not a good sight, and they mock him, king of the Jews. I think Pilate didn't want to crucify him, so he had him scourged, thinking this would appease the crowd. He brings Jesus back in, and they have another conversation. And he's like, I don't think this guy is guilty of anything. I don't understand why you want to do this. And so then, because uh, his fear of the crowd, because of his fear of the Jews, he orders to have Jesus crucified. If you ever go to Jerusalem, I haven't been, but I've heard from several people. If you go to Jerusalem, uh, on, uh, on Pontius Pilate's fortress, it's called the Antonia Fortress, there's a sign and the sign says Via Della Rosa. If you guys ever heard of the Via Della Rosa, some of you will find this interesting. Via Della Rosa in Spanish uh, actually means uh, the way of sorrow, the way of pain, the way of suffering. Uh, and this was on, I, I thought it was kind of interesting. You might think this is funny, but this is some people, some scholars say Pontius Pilate was actually Spanish. And that maybe the the 10th legion of his soldiers were actually from Spain. You have to think about this. Jerusalem and that part of the world was growing rapidly. It was a cultural hub and probably the most diverse cultural hub in the world. And so if this is true, it would make sense that Pilate and maybe some of his soldiers are Spanish. Some of you guys are laughing because you know my last name is Libramento. Listen, I don't have to go back all the way to Pilate to know that the Spanish people were violent sometimes. Uh, But... Listen, it's interesting. Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. And so what they did was they took Jesus and they made him walk the Via Della Rosa. 
the Via Della Rosa is the longest way possible to the place where he would be executed. It was a winding road all the way through Jerusalem. And what they would do is they would take these criminals and they would force them to walk the Via Della Rosa as a picture, as an example to all of those who might be thinking about uh, rebelling against Rome. Listen, here's what's going to happen to you. And so Jesus is forced to walk the Via Della Rosa. Remember, this was reserved for murderers, armed robbers, and insurrectionists. And I think it's a good place to say right now that Jesus was none of those. But for some reason, he was on this road on the Via Della Rosa. Not only that, he had to carry his cross of execution. All right? He had to carry the patibulum. And across the upper part is the patibulum. The vertical piece was being uh, put and stationed at the place of execution. And now Jesus, who is, has been sweating in the garden, has been beaten to death, hit in his face several times, beer ripped out, uh, struggling, obviously, <clears throat> is forced to carry the patibulum, which is about 70 to 80 pounds. It's a large piece of wood, and he has to carry it down the Via Della Rosa. He doesn't make it all the way. In fact, uh, he, has, um, he has his buddy Simon of Cyrene picks it up because he can't carry it anymore and he carries it for him. And so Jesus is making this journey and he arrives at the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. If you're in Jerusalem and you look out towards that hill, it looks like a skull. It's called Golgotha. This was the place of execution. In Latin, Golgotha is Calvarium. Uh, that's the word where we get Calvary. Uh, Calvary, not cavalry. That's totally different. That's men on horseback. But Calvary, all right? Calvarium. Golgotha is the place of the skull. And this is when Pilate coronates Jesus. This is like Jesus' coronation. Pilate sits down and he creates a sign. He creates a sign that says this. It, well, it says King of the Jews, and it's written in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. If I remember this correctly, Hebrew uh, is the language of religion. Greek, the language of education. Latin, the language of law. He writes it in three different languages so that everyone who sees can read this. It says, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. And the Jews... They got. They went crazy. They're like, are you serious? Like, he's not our king? We already told you. This guy, in fact, uh, Pilate, why don't you just change it? Why don't you just change it for us? And instead of king of the Jews, say, I am the king of the Jews, like he said it. And, and, and Pilate just fools, uh, he just clowns these fools. He's like, nope, I said it. It's written. It's done. And so now there's a sign that hangs above Jesus. Jesus has been crucified. He's been, you know the story, they put nails through his hands nails through his feet. They've been raised up. The scripture says, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. Jesus is, is crucified, and there's a sign above his head that says, King of the Jews. Interesting thing about this, this isn't the first time that Jesus, Jesus is familiar with this, the idea, the name King of the Jews. This wasn't just something to punk them. If you, if you go all the way back, when Jesus was born, you guys remember the people from uh, was it the east? The wise men showed up. You know, remember the wise men? They came bearing gifts. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a trough. The wise men show up. They were from probably modern-day Iran. And they show up, and they say this. They say, we're looking for the king of the Jews. 
Jesus, fast forward a little bit, Jesus is on the donkey, humbly coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. People are waving palm branches. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, here is the king of Israel. And now at the end of Jesus' life, now he has a sign above him that says, King of the Jews. It's as if everyone else sees it but the Jews themselves. They can't even, they can't even, it frustrates them. It angers them. Yet there he is on the cross with a sign that says, King of the Jews. The Roman soldiers are at the foot of the cross. Jesus' garments are there, okay? This is customary. Uh, they They would give the spoils to the Roman guards. And they're divvying up his clothes, and they're casting lots, which is like throwing dice, basically, for his clothing. He had, a, he had a tunic that was seamless, which always blew my mind. No wonder Jesus was recognized and revered. Uh, the people who wore seamless garments were typically kings. But Jesus is walking through the cities with dirty feet. He's leaning down, and he's picking up dirt, spitting in it, and rubbing people's eyes, healing people. He's holding babies, and he's got a seamless garment, uh, a, a symbol of a king. And so now that tunic then is being, uh, is, is being gambled for at the foot of the cross. What's great about this, and if you have a study Bible or anything, you can, you'll see this in there. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented, David in Psalms actually spoke about this moment. Psalms twenty two sixteen. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Crucifixion hasn't been invented yet. They pierce my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. That blows my mind. David wrote about crucifixion. It hadn't even been invented yet. Obviously talking, prophesying the death of Jesus. And I believe that that's why John put this in there. Why did John add that small detail? They're casting dice. I think he wants you to know that this situation right here, and if you haven't heard anything I've said, listen to this. This situation right here is no coincidence. Jesus right here is not a victim. This is the plan of God. Remember, John 10, 18 says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to pick it up again. He's talking about his life. And John put that in here to let you know this is no coincidence. This is the plan of God. A carefully staged, this was carefully staged, and prophecy was being fulfilled. And then moving from there, We see the picture of them gambling for his clothes. Moving from there, we go into what's called the seven sayings of Jesus. If you've got your notes today, uh, definitely write these down, and I'm going to go through these. These are the seven sayings of Jesus uh, that are recorded, okay, in the Scripture. Some of these, for for me to be able to have all of these written in here, I had to compile several of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but you'll see uh, many of them in John right there in your text, okay? Let's walk through these real quick. Um, Jesus was crucified uh, at about 9 a.m. So from 9 a.m. to noon that day, when he was first up on the cross, he said three things. The first thing that Jesus said was this. It was a word of forgiveness. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's a shocking statement. That's a shocking statement for a criminal to say on a cross. If I was a Roman soldier and I'm over there gambling and I hear somebody up on the cross say, Father, forgive them, I'm like, who is this guy? Yeah, I'm looking around. I'm starting to feel bad about myself. Like, he just asked for forgiveness for me. Like, what is going on here? 
Like, this is a weird statement. Usually the criminal's like, I didn't do it. You got the wrong guy. No, instead, Jesus is like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And so it kind of gets everybody's attention. All of a sudden, this is uh, weird. Jesus has two people crucified next to him. And one of them, I think that that statement right there, hope wells up in him. He says, listen, we're guilty, but this man, he's innocent. <clears throat> and he looks at Jesus and he says, listen, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And it blows my mind <clears throat> that Jesus is being crucified and all he's thinking about is other people. All he's thinking about is other people. He says, forgive them. Moving on to the rest of some of the other things he says, he looks at Mary and John. He says, listen, take care of each other. The other thing he says is he looks to that guy who just reached out to him and said, remember me. He said, surely you'll be with me in paradise. That's the second thing Jesus says on the cross, if you're taking notes. Surely you'll be with me in paradise. Talking to the guy. Listen, if you're hurting, pain is, uh, pain is rough. It's distracting. It is distracting. Like, think about it. If you're hurt, you can't think about nothing but it. Like, the, recently my knee's been killing me, and I'm kind of freaked out because I'm hiking to Machu Picchu in August, and I'm, like, scared because I'm like, uh, I can't think of nothing else. In fact, I'm walking weird just because I'm thinking about it all the time. If you're in pain, you're not thinking of anything else but your pain, but your suffering. And for some reason, Jesus is in the most pain of his entire life, and all he thinks about is other people. And it blows my mind. It's crazy. Which leads me to the third thing Jesus says on the cross from 9 a.m. to noon. He says this. He looks at John, and he says, take care of Mary, his mother. His mother was there. He said, take care of Mary. All right? Uh, and in fact, until Mary dies, she's living with John. It's crazy because I'm like, where are the disciples? Where are they? The only one that's here is John, and then there's three other Marys there. It was a common name. <clears throat> but where are the disciples? When Jesus fed people, thousands showed up. When Jesus preached, hundreds showed up. When he was in the upper room, there were 12 of them, and then 11 when Judas betrayed him. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, there were three, and now that he's at the cross, there's one. This is a hard, 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 difficult situation. This story is difficult. Then we get to 12 noon. The other day I tried to cut my grass at 12 noon. That was a terrible idea. The sun was like directly in the middle of the sky. Uh, I was burning up. I was like, I walked outside. I was like, nah, <laughs> went back inside. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. Something very strange happens in the story. At 12 noon, the sky gets dark. 12 noon, the middle of the day, it goes dark, and Jesus doesn't say a word. It's so dark that historically in several Roman manuscripts, this instance was recorded. It got eerily dark, and Jesus doesn't say anything. And then eventually he breaks the silence with the fourth thing he says. He cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the fifth thing he says, I thirst and they take a hyssop branch, and they dip it in wine, sour wine, and they put it to Jesus' lips. <clears throat> the hyssop branch is a spongy weed, little-known fact. The hyssop was a common weed in that part of the world. In fact, during Passover, the Jews would take the hyssop and dip it in the blood of a sacrificed lamb and wipe it over the doorposts. 
hyssop branch was significant. And they take it in some sour wine, just some, just some not so good wine. They put it to his face. But this is the second time Jesus has offered wine. The first time is recorded in Matthew. Uh, it was Matthew 27. Jesus is on the Via Della Rosa. He's walking, and they offer him some wine that's filled with gall. And he tastes it and refuses it. Gall, this is interesting, gall is a sedative. If you're in pain, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to numb the pain. Why did he deny the wine then? I don't know. I, I feel like when I read that and I hear that, I think that Jesus, he knew what was going on. Then remember, this is not coincidence. This is a plan. This is staged. If he was taking on the full wrath of God, he didn't want anything but the full measure of God's wrath. He knew he needed to embrace it and feel it all because he was our substitute. And I feel like that was why he refused it because he's like, look, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to do whatever it takes. And so now they're offering wine. He refuses the wine uh, at, at the Via Della Rosa, and they give him some wine to drink. Uh, none of us in here have ever been crucified, but I've heard that it causes a raging, fiery thirst in you. You're losing blood, you're losing fluid, and you're up, uh, hung up in the sky. Uh, it's not good. The sixth word, he says, it is finished. I love this. I love this. This is, how, this is how intentional our God is. This is how intentional Jesus is. He says, it is finished. This is something common, but he's not saying, I'm finished. Goodbye, cruel world. Deuces, I'm done. He's not saying, we're finished. I'm, this is over. He says, it is finished. Literally translated in the Greek, it's the word tetelestai which means it is finished. This was a common word. If you were a Jew and you were at the cross, you've heard this word before, tetelestai. This was a term used by a servant. When a master asked a servant to do something and he went and did it, he would come back and say, tetelestai, it is finished. And Jesus looking up to heaven, he says, tetelestai, it is finished. He said several times, I have come to do the will of the Father. I am your servant, it is finished. This term is also used by priests. Priests would look over the lamb sacrifice. Remember, they did sacrifices for their sins, and you would bring a lamb to the temple. And the priest would take that lamb, and he would just kind of look through its fur. He's looking for imperfections. He's looking for anything that, that might be a reason for them not to make the sacrifice. And he would look at the lamb, and if it was perfect, it was spotless, it had no blemish, he would say, Tetelestai, it is finished. That sacrifice is done. It is finished. Interesting here, too, is that it's Passover. We'll get to that in a minute. The third person that would use this was an artist. He would paint a beautiful painting or do a sculpture. He would step back and say, Tetelestai, it's finished. This is beautiful. This is a complete work. I, I can't help but think that this is perfectly planned, that Jesus would say, Tetelestai. Because when we read the Old Testament, sometimes it's hard to see the whole picture. Sometimes we have a lot of questions. If you're like me, you read the Old Testament, you're like, What? Uh, now we're in the New Testament, and the, and, the, and the story is being completed. Jesus now has completed the story. We can step back, and we look at the full Bible, and we see the intricately woven piece of artwork that is the Scripture, and Jesus is saying, there's the picture, there's the story, to Tetelestai, it is finished. And the last person that would usually, usually use this word Tetelestai is a merchant. If a merchant made a sale, a business, 
a legal business transaction. If he would make a sale, he would say it is paid in full to Telestai. And this morning, when we say that, when we sing those songs, Jesus paid it all. When we say that Jesus is our Savior and that he died for our sins, it literally is a legal transaction that God is saying to Telestai, it is finished. I have paid for your sin. I am the sacrifice to Telestai. It is finished. The seventh thing Jesus says, and we're going to be wrapping it up soon, the seventh thing is this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus died. He died. There's a lot of theories, but Jesus was dead. And the reason we know that is because the Jews actually asked them to break the legs of the people who were crucified. And they, the reason they did that was because it was Passover. In the Jewish tradition, it wasn't good to have someone hanging and being crucified during Passover. So they said, would you please just break their legs, speed this process up? So they break the legs of the two soldiers. They look at Jesus and they say, He's dead. There's no reason to break his legs, which then also fulfills another prophecy in the Bible where they say not a bone in his body will be broken. I'm talking like this is not coincidence. And what do they do? They pierce him in his side, which is interesting. It says blood and water come out. A lot of physicians and doctors say that it's weird that there was a large amount of water, so much so that it was recorded. Because they say if he was being crucified, that it would have been majority blood. But they say that because there was a lot of water, they think it was a cardiac thing. They said that maybe there was so much stress on his heart. And there's actually a condition, I don't know the legal term, but I've heard that they call it the broken heart. So for us to say that perhaps Jesus was crucified and died of a broken heart before, he, before the, even the crucifixion caused him to die or he suffocated, uh, I think it's safe to say. So they take him down, right, and then uh, they put him in a tomb. Two people show up, Nicodemus. Y'all remember Nicodemus? He came to Jesus at night. He was, a, he was a spiritual leader, right, and he was a little nervous. He came to Jesus at night. We knock him, right, but look who showed up. Where are the other disciples? I'm just saying. Nicodemus shows up, and we give him so much grief. The other person is Joseph of Arimathea gave his tomb as a place for Jesus to be buried. Why did we walk through this story? Why did I tell you this incredibly heavy, heavy, heavy story this morning? It's because the people of Israel were looking for a God who would do whatever it takes to deliver them from their circumstance. They were looking for someone to deliver them from Rome. They were looking for a God that would do whatever it takes to deliver them from their circumstance. But the God of the universe in Christ Jesus was saying, I'll do whatever it takes to deliver them from their sin. And it just looked totally different. Sometimes we get, we get stuck on what we see. And we forget that there is something deeply spiritual happening all around us and in our lives. And that's what Jesus came to do. His motivation this morning, why did he do this? If this was planned by God and he had every chance to run away, to get away with God, he could disappear. Why did he go through this? What was his motivation? His motivation was selfless love. He loved you. He loved us. Whatever it takes. Imagine what our world would look like. What if more of our friends would say, I'll do whatever it takes for my friends to see the love of Jesus. I'll do whatever it takes. What if more husbands and wives said to God, I'll do whatever it takes for my spouse to know that I love them and that God loves them. 
What if more churches would say, I'll do whatever it takes for my city to know I love it and that God loves it? And so this morning, we're going to have a time of prayer here briefly. And uh, I just want the story to kind of just resonate in your soul. I want it to resonate in your heart. Because when we talk about a cross, this isn't a cool thing we wear around our neck. But we're remembering something that God did for you and for me. A legal transaction where God said, listen, I'm going to be the sacrifice for your sin. Isn't it interesting that Jesus was crucified during the Passover season? That in the temple, while Jesus was being crucified, lambs were being slain for uh, our sin, for sin. And outside on Golgotha, the Lamb of God, Peter called him the Lamb of God, was being slain for our sins. And this morning, I want you to know, no matter what you're going through, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this story. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you're going through. If you feel an incredible amount of emptiness, you're alone, you have no purpose, you don't, you don't know what's going on in your life, I want you to know that there is a God that is willing to do whatever it takes for you to know peace, for you to know him, for you to know selfless love in a powerful way. This morning, if this is the hundredth time you've heard this story, I want to ask you this. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to offer selfless love to a hurting world? Why do we do it at a church? Why do we, we do I Love My City? We do it because we want to be like Jesus, selfless love. We want to serve our community and our world. And why do we give our time and our money to strangers, neighbors, the poor, and the broken? It's because we want to be like Jesus. We want to be selfless like him. We want to, I want, when people look at my life, I want people to think of the cross. I want them to say, man, that guy is selfless like Jesus. And so I'm going to pray, but I want to challenge you if, if one, <clears throat> if this is your first time hearing this and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you've never understood what it means to be a Christ follower, this story should be the weight, should be something heavy in your heart. And I pray that it is, that maybe it moves you to giving your life to Jesus. I'm telling you, a life transformation that you will never experience anywhere else. You can look everywhere. If that's you today, during this time of prayer and during this time, this song, uh, I want you to, if you feel led to, to pray. Come grab me. I want to pray with you. We're going to have some people in the, uh, in the sides that will, that will pray with you. Uh, if you've heard this story a hundred times and you say, Lord, you're my Savior. I love you, and I understand that I want to be like you in selfless love. I just want to challenge you. I want you to challenge you to step out of your comfort zone and act selflessly for three people this week. Write it down. Three people, and I want you to do something selfless, something that looks like Jesus. And if they ask you, why are you doing this? I challenge you, tell them why. The story isn't over here. I like that. The story isn't over here. Jesus dies on a cross. Um, but there was a prophecy. There was a prophecy that a Savior would come, a Savior of the world, and he would refer, reverse the effects of death. And on the third day, he will rise again. Rise again. And that's next week. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up here. We're going to have a time of prayer. So let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for what you did for us. I feel like the words that I'm saying can't even, can't even uh, communicate how thankful I am and how thankful we are, God, for your sacrifice. You laid down your life for us, the ultimate sacrifice. You were perfect without sin. 
You weren't a murderer. You weren't an insurrectionist. You weren't uh, an armed robber. You were innocent, perfect God, yet you were crucified and died for our sins. This morning, I pray the weight of that truth uh, changes deep in our hearts and our minds. God, I pray that as this week goes, Lord, that you will just transform us, that you'll draw us closer to you, God, that we will uh, have an experience with you this week that we can't deny is a spiritual experience given by you. Lord, I pray, Lord, that people in this room who have never been saved by your grace, that have never understood that it was this sacrifice right here that could change a person's life if only they would give their life to you. God, I pray that people are saved this morning from their sin and their brokenness. God, I pray as a church, Lord, that the people in this room who have heard this story over and over and maybe have been numb to the, in the image of the cross, God, I pray that a new and a fresh understanding of your grace uh, just fills our hearts. God, I pray when we go out to eat and we leave this place, every person that we see in that restaurant, God, that you break our hearts for that person. God, that you will give us a way where we can act selflessly. That we can say, Jesus loves you, God. That the reason I'm doing this is because God has done something incredible for me, Lord. Break our hearts as a church and as people. God, we want to be like you. We want to look like you, God. We want to honor and recognize your sacrifice. That the God of the universe came and became a man and died for our sins. It could have been some other way. But God, you chose to do it this way. It was your design. It was your plan the entire time. And the enemy thought he was clever and thought he would kill you, not knowing, blind to the fact that it was in your death we have life. We love you, Lord, in Christ's name.